0: Um, Stacy and I always love it when we uh, get to come up here. Uh, I'm one of the pastors at Christ's Covenant Church just down the road, so we were worshiping with them this morning at the early service, as we always do, and we prayed for you all um, as we gathered this morning, as we do every Sunday, and are really, um, for Stacy and I, really happy to be together with you this morning. Stacy and I are actually kind of on the verge of happy chaos uh, because we are having our second little girl, Due August 17th. Stacy was looking forward to a, a kind of a peaceful, calm summer, and then we saw this house a couple weeks ago get, go up for sale uh, that we thought, man, that would be a great house uh, in a neat neighborhood, and so. Uh, we bought that house, so we're moving uh, in a couple weeks, and then having the baby a few weeks after that. So it will be happy chaos for us. But we're happy to uh, take time away from busyness and meditate on the Word of God together with you this morning. We'll be in Colossians four. Um, so if you want to turn there, uh, we'll be looking at just a couple verses and uh, devoting our our hearts and attention to this passage because we live. Uh, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we are happy to sort of come to the family table and be fed again from his word this morning. We're looking at uh, Epaphras in Colossians 4, Uh, just uh, a man, just a a little man uh, tucked in the back parts of this short letter to a a small church in the town of Colossae, and uh, we want to learn from his example uh, to us. You know, we all have lots of troubles in life. Uh, the Old Testament story of Job is a story about a man who loses everything, has lots of troubles himself. And it's a fairly dark story, but um, one of the things Job says is that man is born to trouble like the sparks fly upward. And we so often find that to be true in our own lives and the lives of those around us. Just over the past couple weeks, I've had um, lunch or coffee with uh, a guy who's going through long-term unemployment, a guy who's uh, uh, addicted to alcohol, a guy who is having some severe marital conflict. Um, There's a family in our church whose little girl is a failure to thrive and she just can't gain weight. Uh, You may have heard Tom Mercer's uh, granddaughter, Anna Caroline has uh, just been beaten down by leukemia for the past 50 days, and uh, there are so many troubles, and if you think of your own life uh, and the people around you kind of in your sphere, you know this. You feel this yourself. You see it in the lives of those close to you that life is full of troubles, and yet we believe that God is pervasive in the world, that the transcendent invades the imminent, and we believe that God is a part of our lives, and so we have this longing, we want to see him show up in our lives in the midst of trouble. We want to say his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood, the songs we just sang. And we want that to be true for those around us as well, that they would, you know, even as we sing those words, that we would feel that kind of desire for people near us in the midst of the flood, that they would feel his oath, his covenant, his blood, to support them. And so we want to see God's work fulfilled uh, in us, even in the midst of trouble. And that's exactly what Epaphras wants for the church in Colossae as they experience trouble within, uh, false teaching that has crept up, trouble from without the threat of persecution and ostracism from the surrounding community. Epaphras is a model of working hard for them in prayer that God's work would be fulfilled in them. And so he's a model, an example to us of working hard at prayer to see God's purposes fulfilled in the lives of those around us. I think Paul intentionally includes Epaphras here at the end of this letter to the Colossians, not as a mere attaboy uh, to him, but really as an example that Paul is commending to all who will read this letter. If you look at chapter four, verse 16, Paul says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. You can just see in the way that Paul appends this comment at the end of the letter that he envisions these letters that he's writing, this one in particular, uh, being read among the congregations in Laodicea and Hierapolis and, and Colossae to be read and received as authoritative instruction and guidance for them. And the example of Epaphras is part of that instruction and guidance. And so we want to receive Colossians four, twelve, and thirteen, and this example is part of God's instruction to us through his life. So read with me Colossians four, twelve through thirteen. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So as we reflect on the example of Epaphras, just briefly stated here in his prayers for the church at Colossae, Paul presents him to us as a model for us to consider uh, both in the work of prayer as well as the goal of his prayers and then third, the result of prayer as well. So first of all, let's zoom in on this idea that appears twice in verses 12 and 13, the hard work of prayer, that Epaphras worked hard in prayer for them. You see that there in verse 12. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And then in verse 13, he says it again I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Hard work defines Epaphras's. Uh, ministry and service to the congregation in Colossae, so that it's the, it's the primary thing uh, that Paul highlights about him uh, as he writes this letter to them. Now what's interesting is that <clears throat> the church in Colossae was in a, in a city that was uh, you know had seen better days. The historical records indicate to us that Colossae had once been a thriving, sort of prosperous city, uh, economic center, um, but those were days long gone. And there were a series of economic shifts and natural disasters that had left Colossae as something of a a has-been city. Buildings boarded up, uh, properties vacated, Uh, the golden days are past, maybe like the city of Detroit. That's what Colossae is like. And Paul actually never visited Colossae himself. Um, He had done ministry for a number of years in Ephesus, not far away, a more central, economically significant, um, strategic city, and Paul had been there for a number of years preaching and gathering Christians to form churches in Ephesus. And it seems that during that time, a number of his co-workers had gone out into some of the surrounding, uh, more rural, smaller cities and done a lot of that same kind of work, sort of extending Paul's work in those cities. And evidently, there was this man named Epaphras who had gone to Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea and done that sort of work. He had labored hard preaching the gospel Um, seeing people converted, persuading them to believe and then gathering them into churches so that um, how these Colossians came to believe is that Epaphras persuaded them of the good news of the gospel. So if you look back in chapter one of Colossians, chapter one, verse five, Paul says, uh, he's speaking about this hope that's been laid up for them. He says of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, Um, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras had faithfully shared the good news about Jesus with the people in Colossae and Laodicea and in Hierapolis. He had faithfully preached to them and sought to persuade them in a variety of conversations that Jesus Christ had cleansed them by his blood from their sins, and they believed that. He had persuaded them that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, and they too could be raised with him to newness of life, and they came to believe that and he had persuaded them that they would appear with him in glory when he appears again. It was Epaphras who had led them into believing all these things, and now there are these small congregations in these cities. In Colossae, it may have been just 30 or 40 people a gathering, much like ours, all of whom trace their spiritual rebirth back to Epaphras and his work for them, and he is still working for them. Just as he had labored to see them come to faith, he continues to labor now in prayer for their progress in faith. He is working hard for them. That idea of struggling is the same one that shows up in Luke's gospel where Luke is describing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in agony in prayer, struggling, praying earnestly. That is what Epaphras is doing for the church in Colossae. Now, here's why I say all this. Why would Epaphras work so hard for them? His ministry is defined by struggling, working hard for their progress in faith through his prayers. (laughs) Why? Uh, Because he loves these people. His heart is wrapped up in their well-being. And this is always true when it comes to praying for people. Uh, Praying for someone is an act of service that reflects a heart of love. Uh, It's love to pray for someone. And if you don't love someone, uh, if if you begin consistently praying for them, you may find you grow to love them. Love not only motivates our prayers for others, but it also leads us in greater love towards others. So for a Christian then, you can sort of estimate, evaluate uh, the spiritual quality of your love for another person uh, by the quality of your prayers for them. The hard work of prayer follows strong desires for God's work to be fulfilled in the lives of other people. And so Epaphras has strong desires for their progress in faith, having sort of given birth spiritually to this congregation to begin with, and so he labors hard in prayer for them. Why is prayer such hard work, though? Have you ever stopped and pondered that question? My guess is that if you've ever tried praying, then at some point you've probably reflected on that question. Why is it hard? Um, on one level, it seems like it should be so easy. Uh, you know, there's no audience, so there's no stage fright, uh, there's no physical exhaustion, you're just sitting there. Uh, so, why is it so difficult? And I think the easiest answer to that question has something to do with our attention span. Uh, You might say, my mind got caught, or I I got caught up in thinking about other things, all that I have to do today. Or perhaps it's not the urgency of other things that distracts you, but rather um, the pleasure that you take in other things. There's just too many other things you want to do. Uh, You may want to sleep in to get your full seven hours or feel like you have to sleep in because you stayed up late catching up on Netflix or you want to spend the day with your family together or you want to catch up on sports or news or whatever it is that kind of occupies your attention and then prayer just doesn't make it into that list of things that you want to do and plan to do because you take pleasure in those things. And then honestly, some of us doubt that prayer works, right? Right? Maybe God didn't show up for you at a time where you felt like you needed him or you feel like you've just rarely seen answers to prayer that sort of lend faith to your um, sense of confidence that God really responds to prayer. And so what do you do with all these challenges that seem to make prayer hard work? Well, I think we should remember that at the root of all of these sort of superficial explanations, busyness or distractedness or doubting, uh, undergirding the matter of it all is is faith, really our faith in God. Do you believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him? Hebrews says this is the essence of faith, believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him, which is us coming to God in prayer and asking him for things. Um, faith believes that he exists to hear those prayers and that he is disposed to answer those prayers. So prayer requires faith, but here in Epaphras, we have this example, not only of faith, believing faith in prayer, uh, but also of persistent diligence. You you, You hold your attention on someone in prayer, and you do that day after day. Uh, you have some longing some desire in your heart for God's work to be fulfilled in the life of another person in this case Epaphras wanting that to be done in the people there at Colossi so you hold your mind and desires your dependence on God on that object uh, for some period of time I think many of us come at prayer like a Rubik's Cube well If you're anything like me when it comes to a Rubik's Cube, you've maybe tried once or twice in a passing sort of way and then determined it's impossible for you and just set it aside and you move on to the next thing. And I think we often treat prayer like that. We discard it before we've really made a legitimate effort at it. But there's Epaphras, an example to us, to work hard in prayer, struggling in prayer, you see him sort of in the mind's eye and reading this passage, sitting at his desk with his head bowed in prayer for the congregation in Colossi. You know, others may be sleeping or playing or attending to errands or doing business, but there he sits, outwardly motionless, uh, inwardly full of holy activity, uh, struggling, agonizing, working hard for their progress in faith in his prayers But prayer is hard. And I think this is why so often, just as an example, when we get together in Bible study groups to pray. So we come together to read the Bible and pray. We come to a prayer time, a dedicated prayer time. Maybe one of the few times or only times in the week that people have a dedicated prayer prayer time and yet we still find it difficult to pray. One of the most consistent complaints I hear from some of the women in our church about their Bible study groups is that during their prayer time they never really get around to praying. Uh, They talk this direction about all the things going on in their lives but they never talk this direction to God about those things. Maybe they plan for 20 minutes of prayer, they end up talking for about 19 minutes and then realize what's happened. Someone attaches sort of a closing prayer onto all of that discussion. Why does that kind of thing happen? I think it's because we all feel the same struggle. It's easier to talk this way than it is to talk this way. It's difficult work to go to God in prayer. So Dallas Willard said, the open secret of many Bible-believing churches is that a vanishingly small percentage of those talking about prayer and Bible reading are actually doing what they're talking about. And sometimes that's true even when we get together. Again, I think that's because prayer is hard work. It's mental attention Uh, true dependence, uh, fortitude expressed over time in prayer even as we wait to see the prayers answered. And so it demands that we love those for whom we pray and that we recall our hearts to faith in God, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But Epaphras is an example to us. Not only um, does his example demonstrate hard work in prayer, but his example also instructs us about the the goal of prayer. The goal of prayer. So if you look back at verse 12 again, uh, what is it that Epaphras is praying for? Uh, Well, he is praying, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, remember, Paul is holding up Epaphras here as as an example. So we want to learn from this. And and Paul has evidently heard the content of Epaphras' prayers. So maybe they've prayed together for the church in Colossae. And so Paul knows not just that Epaphras is praying for them, but also knows what Epaphras is praying for them. And he tells Colossians what Uh, Those prayers are, he's praying that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Mature, to be mature means to be uh, discerning. It's to be able to tell the wrong from the right. Uh, You're mature when you know the right thing to say and the wrong thing not to say in a given situation. You're mature when you know the right way to think, uh, the wrong way not to think about a particular doctrine or idea. And so the more skilled you are in understanding the Bible and then applying biblical thinking to real-life situations, the more mature you are. And this is what Hebrews teaches us, that the mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Epaphras prays that they would be mature and also that they would be assured in all the will of God, which is another way of saying that you would be filled up with everything that is God's will filled up with everything that is God's will, meaning that everything about your life, uh, your marriage, your friendships, your schoolwork, your career, everything uh, would be filled up with the things that God wants, that everything about your life, as far as it depends on you, would be exactly as God wants it to be. That's what Epaphras is praying for them, to be fully assured in all the will of God, to be filled up with the will of God. So you put these two ideas together, mature, fully assured in all the will of God, and that's what Epaphras is praying for them. Now obviously this is a summary of Epaphras' prayers for them. He didn't just toss up this one line and then move on with his day. But Paul is saying this heartbeat characterizes all of Epaphras' prayers for you. And so this is instructive to us about how we should pray for other people. You know, the greatest need that we all have is holiness. We need to be holy. Hebrews says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we need holiness in order to see God. It's our fundamental purpose in life, actually. Uh, The reason that we were created by God, the reason there are humans walking around on earth, is that we might know God and enjoy him, that we might give glory to him. Well, that's just another way of saying holiness, uh, setting ourselves apart for God, enjoying him, giving glory to him. So therefore, if holiness is our greatest need, then the most important thing that you can ask God for in the life of another person is that they would be holy. Uh, that they would enjoy God and that they would be giving him glory in the way that they live. In other words, we don't want to just pray circumstantial prayers for other people, but we should pray, first of all, about spiritual concerns. Uh, David Pallison said it this way, pray beyond the sick list. Pray beyond the sick list. You know, when we pray... About medical conditions, he says uh, such prayers may be medically informative but are often spiritually impoverished. So he gives three suggestions. If you're praying for someone who's sick or in some kind of other circumstantial uh, trouble, number one, keep spiritual issues in view. Uh, even in the midst of praying for those struggles, keep spiritual issues in view. Secondly, long for Christ's kingdom as you pray for them. Long for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And then thirdly, uh, he says, practice the three strands of prayer, which obviously has three subpoints. Three strands of prayer would be change my circumstances, change me, and change everything by revealing more of yourself. So that when we pray, we're asking God, yes, to change our circumstances, but we go beyond that and say, change me. Change everything by revealing more of yourself. And when we pray for others, we want to pray in the same way, keeping spiritual issues in view and asking God uh, to fulfill his work through the circumstances that someone uh, may be going through. So we don't want our prayers to be laser-focused on circumstances, uh, but rather we want prayers that are shaped by spiritual concern for God's work to be done in the lives of others. You know, Stacy and I, um, in our marriage, had several years uh, of intense conflict where, honestly, we were both wanting out of marriage. And uh, they were difficult years. Now, there was a, a longitudinal study done um, that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there, if they just stay together for five more years... They'll report being happy. Just staying together for five more years is all it takes. Not really. Obviously, there are some ingredients to change there that um, that will bring about that change from unhappy to happy. And what was it that brought about that that change for Stacy and I? You know, what what were those ingredients that led from unhappy to happy for us? I wish I could answer that uh, question with great confidence, but honestly, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But one of the things I do know is that at some point along the way, uh, we felt led and certain that it was it was the right thing for us to talk to the elders of our church about the struggles that we were going through and to ask them to pray for us. And so then over a period of months, They were praying along with us that God would reveal things to us, would change us, change our circumstances, change everything by revealing more of himself to us. They told us often that they were praying for us and we were grateful for their prayers. And I'm sure only heaven can calculate how much of the change to happiness that has resulted in our marriage came about as a result of their prayers for us. So that as God has brought Stacy and I along toward maturity and full assurance of his will in our lives, uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to them for their prayers. Uh, To the extent that we have made progress, we are indebted to them. And Stacy and I similarly have had the opportunity to sit with a number of uh, couples, married couples, going through challenges in their marriages in, in our own home, you know, talking over those challenges, meeting regularly for a period of months. I've often made the disclaimer in those cases I'm not a professional marriage counselor, I'm just a pastor who believes that the gospel is powerful to change us and to bring reconciliation. Uh, to the core conflicts that we all experience in marriage. Those who are married know what I mean by core conflicts because you have them, those things that kind of go on repeat in your marriage where your sin patterns and your spouse's sin patterns butt up against each other constantly. How do we resolve those tensions? Uh, They need to be confronted with the power of the gospel, insightfully applied, and with believing prayer humbly practiced. And so when we, Stacy and I would meet with other couples uh, talking about these things, the meeting was always the same. It was very simple. We'd talk about their problems. And then we'd talk about the Bible and try to apply the gospel to those problems with precision. And then we'd spend time in prayer together. Not just a closing prayer at the end of our time, uh, but really trying to allocate some time to pray through the thing, the problems we had just discussed, the gospel we had just confessed again that we put our hope in uh, and applied it to those problems. Let's ask God dependently together that he would help us walk out the gospel in the context of those problems we just discussed. And whether it's marriage or any other personal problem or interpersonal conflict that we have, that pattern can be just the same. And then if there's any challenge uh, that is, you know, if any any, um, any progress that's made in this challenge, any change that results positively at the end of six months of doing that kind of thing, it's not primarily due to effective marriage counseling or the effective counsel of a uh, therapist or biblical counselor. Rather, the change comes about because a gracious father heard those prayers humbly expressed by his children and responded to them. So prayer is hard work, but worth it. And prayer should be focused on spiritual well-being, that we would be mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And as you pray for others, I would encourage you, focus your prayers in this way. You actually don't need to know a single detail about what's going on in the life of another person in order to pray effectively and biblically and dependently for them. Just open up God's word, turn to the prayers of Paul, like the ones that are printed there in the handout in your bulletin, and start praying for another person. If your own words don't seem good enough, just use the words God has given us and pray for them that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And then third, consider the result of prayer. The result of prayer. <clears throat> we actually can't turn to the passage to see this because it's not there. Uh, at the time of Paul's writing, the results of Epaphras' prayers for the Colossians were TBD, TBD. Uh, We're not sure yet what's going to happen. Paul is deeply concerned himself about the spiritual well-being of the Colossians. That's why he's writing this letter to them, though he's never met them. He loves and cares for them. And Epaphras is agonizing in prayer, shedding some prayer sweat over them. But the result remains to be seen. Um, And that's how it often is with us in prayer. We find ourselves waiting on God regarding what it is that we're asking him for. And so we embrace by faith this belief that God exists and rewards those who seek him. And yet we're waiting to see that reward as we seek him. And so there's a certain, a certain paradox in prayer that we embrace as we wait. James um, says that you have not because you ask not you do not have because you do not ask. That is a powerful principle that informs the way we pray, that prayer changes things. It really does. Prayer is effective. If you do ask for it, then you will have it. If you don't pray for certain things, they they won't happen. But if you do, things happen. If you ask, you'll have it. That's a powerful principle for prayer from James. And yet, The New Testament also says this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's 1 John. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So this seems like a contradiction. We can have anything we ask for. Uh, Actually, he hears us only if we ask for certain things. Those things that accord with his will. But this paradox is actually a good thing for us. You know, Think about this for a second. What if all people were granted the things that they prayed for? What if everyone got uh, what they asked for in prayer? Imagine all the bad things that would be, that, that would be happening uh, if all those prayers were granted. We don't know the best way to pray. Sometimes we get it right. Lots of times we get it wrong. Uh, so how can we pray for things then that, Um, that we want, that we feel a desire for, um, and yet we know that we don't always get it right. So we want to pray with confidence. I believe this works, this changes things. God exists and he rewards us who seek him. Um, And we don't want to think that our prayers are worthless. What if I'm not praying according to his will? Well, I have three pieces of encouragement resolving this sort of conundrum. First of all, the more you pray the Bible, the more you know your prayers align with the will of God. The more you pray the Bible, the more you know your prayers will align with the will of God. Uh, so the prayers of Paul, as I mentioned, he prays frequently for these churches and he kind of articulates them in the letters of the New Testament, how he's praying for them. And those prayers then are great prayers uh, for us to use in praying for others, uh, Paul says in Colossians 1.11 that he's praying for the Colossians like this. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You know someone going through a struggle, through some difficulty? Open to Colossians 1.11 and pray for them that they would have this power, being strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all endurance and patience with joy. And so we can let the words that God has given us shape our words back to him. And we know then that our prayers will align with his will. So pray the Bible. And then secondly, um, so listen, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is a verse that actually tells us what Jesus is doing right now. So there's a lot that we don't know about heaven, uh, what we'll be doing when we get to heaven, what heaven is like, you know, what goes on there. But one thing we do know about heaven is what Jesus is up to there right now. This is Hebrews 7:28. It tells us, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. He is seated before the Father now, interceding for those who draw near to God through him. You draw near to God in prayer through Jesus Jesus makes intercession for you and whoever you may be praying for. Jesus lives to make intercession for them. So think about this. If you are a um, if you are praying for another Christian in this room, Jesus died to cleanse them from their sins by his blood. He was raised so that they might be raised with him. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the father now making intercession for that person uh, that you are praying for, voicing his desires to the father for that person, pleading for them. And so when you pray for another believer, you're adding your little small mousy voice to the thunderous booming voice of Jesus, bringing these requests and intercessions before the father, Jesus is praying for you. And then a third piece of encouragement, the Holy Spirit prays for us. And Paul says in Romans 8, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So you say, I don't know how to pray. I don't even know what's going on in their lives. I can see it all over their face that they're in a a world of trouble, but I don't know what to pray for them. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so you can say, you know what? I'm gonna try to make some reasonable, biblically, biblically informed request to the Father, uh, but I really don't know. And the Spirit knows. He prays for us. This is like uh, safety on a handgun. I don't know if you've ever used a gun. It's got a safety on it. It keeps it from firing when you uh, don't want it to. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, intercede for us, and it kind of is a safety for us. You know, if we pull the trigger on a misguided prayer, uh, it's kind of aimed in the wrong direction, seeking the wrong thing. The Holy Spirit's like that safety lock that keeps that prayer from firing into the throne room. So the Spirit is like that, but he translates those prayers into heavenly language. The Spirit takes our prayers and makes them... uh, M- makes them align with the will of God, makes them accomplish what God wants them to in his good providence, which means that we can pray with utter confidence uh, and with boldness, uh, but also with this deep humility at the same time, uh, recognizing that it's not our prayers that are definitive, uh, But that the confidence that we have in prayer is rooted in the fact that Jesus prays for us. And that the Holy Spirit prays for us. So prayer is is one of the greatest means that we have. This is a means of grace. It's one of the means that God uses to move his church along toward maturity. That's what Epaphras wants. He wants that end result, that the church would be mature, fully assured in all the will of God. And prayer is one of God's means of grace that he gives to us to bring about that result. You know, who knows? Perhaps the spiritual maturity that you have reached personally, whatever that is, maybe you feel like it's not much, but wherever you're at in the faith, perhaps that maturity is owing in part to the prayers of someone else in this room for you. And their uh, progress in faith, their endurance through depression, their um, encouragement despite difficulty may come as a result of your prayers for them. And so we want that result and so we use the means that God has given us. In other words, God is going to do his work in the lives of uh, those around you. The work that he has planned to do will go forward. Uh, but he longs to use, intends to use prayer as the means of doing that. God has employed our prayers, so to speak. Prayers are like God's employees that he, he hires to do the work that he has planned to accomplish. People in the room this morning, in other words, need your prayers. They need the strength that God will bring to them through your prayers. I texted a friend a couple weeks ago at the end of the night after a meeting at church. I texted him and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We prayed this for you tonight as a body. We all hurt for you and your family. He texted back a few minutes later and said, thank you. We have thought much of how encouraged and strengthened we are by the knowledge of being prayed for by the body. We see our weaknesses so clearly right now. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had like that, how many text messages have gone back and forth like that where people feel they actually have this experience, maybe you've had it, of feeling some internal fortitude, actually being strengthened, and it's it's like it's inexplicable. Where did that come from? And then you find out there was a a small group of people uh, praying, struggling, working hard for you in prayer. And all of a sudden, the inexplicable is explained. That's where that came from. The Holy Spirit translated those prayers into the language of heaven, and Jesus took those prayers into the throne of grace, and the Father heard those prayers, and then sends forth his, his angels to do his holy bidding. Uh, and responded by strengthening and standing by uh, the person who was in the midst of the fire. So again, Paul prayed for the Colossians, that you would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all endurance and patience with joy, which I'm sure reflected Epaphras' prayers for them as well. Uh, When we pray for others then, they experience some strength or some internal fortitude. You know, God actually stood by me in that trial. I was strengthened internally by the Spirit. Where does that come from? God employs the prayers of his people to do that work in the lives of others. So the result of prayer. Well, as we pray biblically with the confidence that Jesus prays for us and that the Holy Spirit translates our prayers into something worthwhile, we have this confidence that the result of prayer is that God does his work through our prayers. So, will you pray for someone else in the room? Uh, Just for the next 30 days, maybe? Would you commit to praying for someone else? Um resolve to pray for someone. So I think as we reflect on this passage, uh, walking this out is actually a fairly clear and simple thing to do. Maybe more than most passages in the Bible, responding to this one is very clear and simple. Uh, Not easy, but at least simple. Um, You may know someone who's in the thick of marital conflict or the muck of porn addiction or on the verge of despair maybe ready to walk away from Jesus altogether. Who knows, but God may desire to employ your prayers as the decisive factor in pulling them back to faith. So resolve then to pray for someone. We don't need monumental results. We just need to be faithful workhorses in prayers reflecting uh, the example of Epaphras here. John Stott said that the battle to pray often takes place on the threshold of prayer. The battle to pray often takes place on the threshold of prayer. In uh, in other words, sometimes it's not prayer itself that we find to be difficult, but it's beginning to pray that we find difficult. And so I encourage you as you leave here to make a resolve to pray, a godly resolve to choose someone to pray for, Begin to pray that they would be mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Let me pray for you.